is episode 200. Oh, episode damn. Of, no, it's close to that, 198 or something. Like that. Simpsons numbers. Yeah, we're getting up there, man. Too many seasons. This is <laughs> season five. We've had some cast changes, too. Oh, for real? Uh, I, I, I must confess, I don't really follow podcast so oh, much. Oh, bless your heart, man. Good for you. <laughs> you never listened to the one we did with Sam Stein, then? I did listen to the Oh, Sam you did Stein listen one. to the yeah, Sam Stein Yeah, I about five or six people sent me the Sam Stein one, including oh, cool. Sam Stein. So, <laughs> oh, he yeah. did. Uh, mm-hmm. Sam Stein is a great guy. He was that was one of the favorite episodes that we've done. My favorite. Yeah, episodes. no, that I loved that one. That was he's great. really awesome. What is he up to these days? I don't know. I think he's just kind of gone to ground and doing his. Uh, he's like participating real hard in like local, just you know, basic stuff where you know, NIMBYs and YIMBYs all clash and like city council mm. meetings and that sort of shit. So, wow. That's actually very appropriate for what we're going to be talking about, because we're going to be talking about YIMBY versus NIMBY. We're going to be talking about um, urban development, quote-unquote. We're going to be talking about urban studies. We're going to be talking about uh, the capitalist mode of production and all of the various weird, crazy contradictions that arise when you try to shelter people, but also have a market around the entire thing and speculation. We are here, folks. The Antifada, Sean KB here with... The terror, the scourge of Yimbies on Twitter. I am referring to, of course, the second Rogan. No offense. Uh, that's not Joe. That is Kevin Rogan. Kevin's here today on the Antifada. Welcome to the show. Uh, great to be here, man. Thank you. Good to get you in person. I have to say we were talking before the show how nice it is to sit across from somebody. This is one of the things that the pandemic took from us. And in beautiful Bushwick, no less. Beautiful, gorgeous Bushwick as you came from beautiful, gorgeous Gowanus. That's right. To be here. Only the best for us, folks. I was, uh, I showed you an artifact that I had <laughs> that could have been from the 1990s or it could have been from an hour ago which is a real, true, live Trotskyist newspaper sold to me, well, suggested donationed to me about <laughs> 35, 40 minutes ago in the neighborhood for Socialist Alternative. Look at that. It's incredible, you know, the just sheer obduracy of, uh, you know, the left, and it, we're going to make it. When I hear the word obdurant, I think of Trotskyists. That's right. <laughs> uh, socialist alternative, are they still con- Are they still Trotskyist, or are they kind of moved past that Man, label? I don't know. You know, I was in, I was in socialist alternative in St. Louis, hey. and I got to say, uh, not didn't see a lot of um, major ideological moves in any yeah. particular way. I saw a lot of, you know, classic sort of... Um, leftist thing of a you know the chapter head um fucking around Mm. blowing up the chapter no less blowing up the chapter there you go no i imagine in uh in seattle where sawant is they probably have some sort of oh my god sa palace yeah that's true i yeah like a, a sort of like a Mormon temple type right, thing. Right, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking big and like big white building, kind right. of floodlights on it at all times with Trotsky <laughs> on the top of a spire, perhaps. Yeah, guilt, you know. Guilt, guilt Trotsky. Gesturing <laughs> maybe to the, to the, to the west. Yeah. To the, to the motherland. To the, the fatherland? Do they call it the fatherland? If you're in Seattle and you're gesturing west, you're kind of gesturing out into the Pacific Ocean. Well, you know. But you're gesturing a- towards China or towards Russia? Well, I don't Realistically, towards Russia, but yeah. also to the vast nothingness that is at the heart of the socialist <laughs> <laughs> The vast abyss at yeah. the heart of yeah. modern-day yeah. Trotskyism. The oceanic depths, um, <laughs> you know, the, the great windswept sea. 
We love our trots, folks. I'm glad that they're still out there in person. I'm yeah, glad I love you guys. They, it was, it was funny. They, they, they were like, so I, I walked up, and you know, unlike a lot of the people on the street, and all the also like sem- selling it in English in this neighborhood, kind of a mistake. I'm not saying it's like it's all Spanish speaking, but yeah. it's at least 50 percent Puerto Rican and Dominican here. But anyways, I like I walked up. And I was like, oh, hey, a newspaper. And they're like, oh, are you familiar with the socialist alternative? And I said, uh, Sawant in Seattle. They're like, you're from Seattle? I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> they're like, oh, how do you know about, you know? And I was like, oh, no, no. And um, yeah, they tried to get me to sign up. And I said, I said, no. They asked me some leading questions about what I knew mm. about socialism. And I wasn't going to get no, into it. Not no. just because I had your coffee in my hand walking from the <laughs> bodega to the show. But it was not the time to get into it. Well, you know, there's one thing that trots are good at, and it's meeting people where they are. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they're seeking out the obvious English speakers in the park. Right. And they're making a beeline to them. And that's just called organizing. That's it. That's yeah. what, this, is what, this is what democracy looks like. <laughs> I've got, I also have in my head, because I was posting about this earlier, I have in my head um, Wisconsin 2011. Oh, man. I don't know why I thought about that today. There's probably a good reason why. Oh, because we were talking about labor stuff online earlier. And I was thinking to myself, uh, how, are, you're in your 30s? Yeah. Yeah. 31. 31. Okay. Yeah. So you would remember Wisconsin 2011. Extremely dimly. Dimly. Like, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. But you were in the Midwest yeah, and that yeah. happened directly a few hundred miles north right. of you. So you know the Midwestern sort of hive mind communicated yeah, various sure. things to me. Th- this is among other things a geography uh, uh, yes. podcast. So this we're is- talking about what's to the west of Seattle and what's to the <laughs> north of St. Louis. And we got all the cardinal <laughs> directions going. We got various national yeah. regions going. If yeah. you're enjoying this content, uh, check out our bonus we'll have. It's about the concept of East. <laughs> We're going to do at least 30, 40, maybe 50 minutes on what's to the east of New York. You, so. you can milk a lot out of that. Oh, my God. I you tell can just you. read a list. Almost one-fourth of, di- of the directions are east, in my in my <laughs> opinion. But we'll get there. Rising star. you know, Rising yeah. sun, even. Yeah. The, not the, just any star. The sun rises in the east. Mm-hmm. The sun also rises. Yeah, no, I was thinking about the, um, the occupation of the capital there in Wisconsin and uh, how things might have been different at that time. When things were popping off in Tahrir Square mm-hmm. in Egypt, uh, the mass, you know, the beginning of the Arab Spring uh, against Osni Mubarak and the American-supported dictatorship. At the same time, uh, Republican Governor Scott Walker comes in and tries to make Wisconsin a bastion of organized labor, traditionally in the United States, um, into uh, the site of a massive struggle in the 1930s, large private and public sector unions. Uh, to make it a right-to-work state, which was eventually successful. Uh, successful, But you had a weird combination of like um, the labor-affiliated Democrats in the state assembly um, combined with a massive upsurge of organized labor go in and basically try to block this through mm-hmm. direct action. And there was a brief moment when the Central Labor Council of, I think it's Southeast um, Wisconsin, passed a directive for their members to start to prepare for a general strike. Oh, wow. It was, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I was watching it from New York at the time because I was about 31 at that point. Okay. And I'm watching this happen. Super exciting. There are a bunch of wobblies on the ground and like right. uh, labor notes type people, troublemaker type people who were reporting back. And it was all exciting. And then, of course, because we know who the labor bureaucracy 
uh, stands for in the end. They twisted all this mass energy into a uh, recall mm, against a bunch yeah, of Republicans, right. filtered everything into the Democrats. Well, then, you know, that's perfectly in fitting. Um, I believe Mike Davis, uh, writing on sewer socialism in Milwaukee, called mm. it the uh, right wing of right wing of labor yeah the right wing of labor so you know and you know if we want to talk about the historical provenance of you know wisconsin labor which you're totally right i mean you know many great things were achieved and did happen but it's always kind of <laughs> that little frisson of like what if we were actually a little more conservative yeah yeah and they and, lost and they, they lost big time yeah and and you saw you've seen the strike wave of the last year or so mm-hmm. uh, which has been exciting but imagine if you had a decade's worth of momentum going into that instead, oh yeah, because I'm not sure it would have stopped at Wisconsin. But right. anyway, this is all sidebar. This is sidebar. all this is all a bizarre prelude to <laughs> talking about. But we're talking about places. We're talking about places, geography, geography, yeah. directions. So it's so all connected. Let's yeah. move in another direction. Let's connect <laughs> this into what we're going to be talking about today, which is. Um, not just your incredible Twitter feed. I must say, you have taken the mantle as, I think somebody described you. Oh, Al, who Al, was a friend, described you as the Glenn Greenwald of Urban Studies Twitter. Yes. Is that what he called Which you? Which I didn't know existed um, <laughs> until now, but I'm glad Al informed me. Um, he, he, he's been trotting that line out a lot. So, behind a block, no less. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. You got the coveted Al block. No, I blocked him. Oh, I, nice. I, okay. I, I got to admit. You got the coveted Kevin Rogan that's block. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I got to admit, you know, not to get too too far into it, but he, he annoys me, you know, just yeah. didn't want to see it. He's. Uh, no disrespect. Yeah, no disrespect. He is the translator of Heinrich, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got some spicy. Well, I'm a picks. shake guy, so you know you're an Anwar shake guy. Well, yeah. there you go, and yeah. that's what happens when and you throw what... when you throw e- uh, economics out the window. Right? <laughs> what was it? What was somebody else? I was because I was I was going through your Twitter feed. That's not all I did. Right, for, right. In preparation for this, I did episode, get like twelve likes from you this morning. <laughs> <Yes>. so. <laughs> I was wondering if you'd see, you were going to see that. This is what passes for research. All right, on the and, and it got me feeling good coming into this interview. <laughs> So I, I did not I did not like every single one of your tweets. No, just it was the judicious. bangers. There it was, was some, judicious. There were some real bangers. Yeah. I also read your, some real stinkers. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, who doesn't? Honestly, we can't. They can't all be zingers. They can't yeah. all. Yeah, they can't all be stinkers, and they all can They can't all mm-hmm. be bangers. But I also read your excellent um, Substack. But um, you know, you've you've gotten into this sort of Twitter groove that I was in a few years ago, and I've right. kind of backed away. Where you're just shit posting all over everybody, and somebody, Matthew Iglesias of all people, oh, yeah. called your take about um, how supply and demand. You use Straffa, right? I use Straffa yeah. um, to basically argue that when landlords are setting prices, it's not supply and demand. They're like, what do you call it, dowsing the yeah. market? Dowsing. Um, and then Matthew Iglesias amazingly responded. So you've gotten to the point where maybe the yeah. worst person on Twitter I know. is shit posting and quote tweeting you. So respect. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's an honor, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hope Iglesias and his various sort of uh, American University interns he pays to make graphs <laughs> for him. Um, you know, I hope I hope they they're thinking of me. I yeah. hope they're thinking of me now. I hope they are too. Uh, Matthew Iglesias, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, first off, go fuck yourself. Uh, second of second of all, you are a laughing stock. And third, don't come on the Antifada. We no. want nothing to do with no. you. Okay, just please. Uh, actually, I, I shouldn't say that. I enjoy reading his horrible Iglesias neoliberal post. No, I could not imagine Iglesias I, in here. It would be fun though. It yeah, would, yeah. Wasn't there like something with Iglesias a year or so ago where he like showed? 
a picture of his bedroom and everybody made fun of him. Yes. Um, cool. I believe, yeah, there, there was that one. It was like a zoom. It was like a zoom screenshot or mm. something like that. Um, and I, I, you know, it was, it was pretty bad, but I think what was most disturbing about all of it is I didn't know it sort of in the fallout of that is I found out he was actually married, which I, oh. I find fucked up. Yeah. That's um, demented. Did you see him posting pictures of his tools? And I mm. use the term very loosely. Uh, were they on a wall? They were hanging. Yeah. He had a pegboard had- set up and <laughs> yeah. he had like, he had like duplicates of some weird shit. I can't remember what it was. And, but it was like all in all, like maybe like 10, 11 things, like yeah. all very like, just like, going into Home Depot and being like, give me the DeWalt special or whatever. Um, he, and just like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what his game is with that, but he's just, he's what just does a guy he fix that, up, man. I don't know because like, honestly, I think, you know, he's just, he's just a guy that is very uncertain about his, yeah. his own existence. And frankly, he should be, he should be, he is an anomaly. Yeah. He should not exist. This man is like single handedly trying to keep alive the sort of Clinton Obama, mm-hmm vital center neoliberal consensus on economics like the boing boing sort of like uh free market uh sort of like pale social democratic bullshit thing that he's the last mr new labor he's the man yeah Yeah. that's right the last the last american blairite um (laughs) before this whole episode devolves into like a chapo trap house episode (laughs) where we just talk shit on various uh twitter characters right right, um Shout out to the baseball crank, I guess. I yeah, who, that guy. Wow, <laughs> man, it's been years. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long time. Let's get into some some meat of this. So Let's I do it. I mentioned uh, nimbies and yimbies. We should definitely talk about that. I think right. that that's a real hot button thing right now. Not simply on Twitter, um, but also politically, because you yeah. have these two factions who are going back and forth and fighting one another. And uh, you wrote you've written some great pieces on your Substack about that. You've also done great stuff critiquing um, the entire like urban studies concept or urban right. sociology, which right. has been really good. All of this from uh, a Marxist perspective. So I, I hope that this episode can clarify a lot of things for the listeners who are maybe sympathetic one way or the other with the NBs or NIMBYs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would, um, who knows what you are out there and what you <laughs> believe in. Um, but uh, maybe, you know, are trying to trying to come up with a more like uh, suitable critique to understand sure. the way that uh, cities and, and real estate works uh, under capitalism, especially this particular constellation we have in the United States. So maybe um, talk about what led you to um, to this particular world like did you come through david harvey you know i i right. read a lot of harvey back in the day read a lot of Guy Debord, which actually mm. brought me to lefebvre which brought me to harvey it's sort of like this critical geographical sort right. of milieu that's been around for the last 50 years what brought you to this stuff yeah um you know great question i i started off as an architect that's my first degree i worked in architecture for a while practical um very practical uh, you know, architects are, you know, it's just the sort of third partying of construction management. If you talk, think about it sectorally, they're in the services sector. Um, but, you know, spent my time in there, went back to school. Um, and I think it was there really going for like an urban studies master's that I kind of, we got Lefebvre in, in architecture. Mm. Architects kind of claim Lefebvre in some way. Um, I read a ton of, you know, production of space, rhythm analysis, that sort of stuff. Um, really, Lefebvre at his most spatial, not when he's doing woo-woo shit about, like, you know, whatever realm of shadows was about. <laughs> um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, like, I, that was sort of where I came up, I guess, and then, you know, started reading Harvey. Um, and I don't know, man, I, like, I really soured on Lefebvre. Mm. I, I really, I think Lefebvre is now something I would call, like, he's, like, basically a Merleau-Pontyite. He's a left Heideggerian, mm. I would say. Like, he, he dilates far too much on place. At the time that he's writing, this sort of, he has his spatial turn or whatever you want to call the antinomy between space and place yeah i mean he and you know henri lefebvre for people don't know he's like marx-ish marx-ish french uh urban theorist yeah late in the post-war period right right and so when especially when he starts getting in like his seminal book on the topic is production of space um which has i think a really noble sort of pursuit which is that it wants he wants to create a political economy of space and great he never does it um does he does he does he do what harvey does which is go laboriously into volume two of capital so no he Uh, i mean what he does mistake right exactly he's 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 kind of a pure vibes right exactly (laughs) and it's kind of like a forerunner of like the type of guys where you get like dialectic because it's two things you know like that's oh, yeah. except for him it's three things and oh, he loves no. this he loves just smashing oh, two the trialectic dude yes. never never go trialectics folks soja <laughs> soja in postmodern geographies also is a bit he actually says trialectics by name and that's mm. you know that's where that's what you inherit if you choose to do urban <laughs> human geography type stuff you're just like mucking around with the dumbest guys that like are sort of like post-marxist savant la lettre yeah. like and you just got to deal with somebody it. that's trying to combine like um lefebvre with richard florida yeah. or something like <laughs> yes. that yeah famously richard florida came in for a lot of flack when we had sam stein on the show because mm. he was at a certain point in time not so much anymore you know his idea. What was his concept of creatives? Creative space? cities. Creative yeah. cities. Yeah. Uh, the idea that, like, in a post-industrial economy, deindustrialized as people understood it in the United States, you would have a creative class. Right. You know, who would come in and fill the sort of vacancy, quote unquote, within cities, and this is the way that cities would prosper. And right. uh, and from the what the seventies, eighties onwards. Yeah, and, and was, he was writing this in the nineties. Yeah, go go nineties, which right. is an important context because this goes back to what we were saying with like the Iglesias's of the world. Absolutely. There was this end of history sort of feeling about that moment where Clintonian or Blairite sort of um, ideology and practice was going to just take us to the promised land. Right. And yeah, and you know, for, for Florida, these people are totally freed from any sort of like stability, any sort of actual access to anything. Well, he would say anything material. And this is actually another big problem with geography as well, because this is, um, you know, Manuel Castells kind of gets his start as another sort of Marxist He's the information guy? Yeah. yeah. He, he, his big breakthrough, though, is about 20 years later after he kind of departs from Marxism or anything, anything approaching it um, and writes the Network Society. Mm-hmm. And so he's another guy where he's like, you know, we live in a totally deindustrialized age already. He's writing in like 94 or 95, <laughs> uh, which, you know, times nicely with the early 90s crisis. Mm. Um, so got to wonder. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, he, he does the same thing. And basically... That has been, I mean, that's been devastating for any sort of urban sociology. Um, and when I say that, I, I mean it broadly. So, like, geography, we can talk about this if we need to, but, like, geography was at one point sort of a um, haven for Marxist perspectives within the academy, was really quite ruthlessly extirpated over the course of the 80s and into the 90s, basically, to, to its absolute death. So you'll be hard-pressed to find any real geography de- like departments or programs anymore 
there's a lot of urban studies stuff nowadays and it kind of has the mantle um sort of obviously from a much less uh much more like sort of quietist mm. ngo involved mm. type perspective a lot of um you know a lot of emphasis placed on practice mm. um and what they mean by that specifically is like creating a PowerPoint that's so good that <laughs> they start building bike lanes or they just sprout out of the ground. Um, that's kind of where I come up. so powerful. It's uh, yeah. indistinguishable from a, bike lanes. Right. A PowerPoint so powerful that it seizes the masses. Um, yeah. So or at least like the, um, the local, um, yes, in my backyard, yes. uh, NGO group. Exactly. That, uh, is that, that's what practice means. Basically. And it, you know, in that, in that sense, so the, those parameters usually work. Yeah, sure. No, I mean like we're, <clears throat> we're talking about, obviously like the theoretical apparatus what's been passed down as mm-hmm. like um an academic discipline that yeah. is tied into of course um architecture it's sure. uh, uh urban planning mm-hmm. in a big way um construction and development even too right 100 percent, huge interface and a lot of your the work that interests me the most obviously is your work on the political economy of the construction industry right so there's like this theoretical apparatus that is very historically specific is what you're is, is, is the way you're describing it it's like as as the economy of space, as the built environment, as commerce, as the movement of commodities and the places of production switch around, then, of course, arise uh, theories adequate to understanding that. Totally. You have that on the one hand, and then you have the actual practice of architecture, design, building, city planning, and things of that sort. And... You know the the interplay between that, of course, is the production of human of the of, of our world. Right. And what I think you would argue, at least I got this, is that, and what I would argue as well, is that what this discipline seeks to do, and what this practice actually does do in practice, is uh, reify and naturalize uh, capitalist social relations. Um, and ensure that ultimately, like the reproduction of capitalist socialists, the reproduction of capital and its production um, are maintained mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, I- increased. Right. So, but but all of that is lost in the mix when you're when you're reading these sort of urban studies. When you're a, a student, perhaps in an undergraduate or graduate, or even if you're an architecture, hell, even if you're a contractor, right? Right. These <laughs> things all seem sort of natural. Yes. Yeah. I I, I think. If, if I were to say one thing that kind of gets reified, it would be the idea... All right, bear with me from here for a second. But the idea, basically, that housing... Like, when we're talking about supply of structures, when we're talking about this, the incoming sort of, like, let's say, finishes, I, what I would call construction finishes. So a new building comes online within a particular local, let's say, space market. It doesn't have to be housing, just whatever. Um, what we're looking at is, you know, something that is, I think, rather known and rather classic to, you know, people like you and me, where it's like what is missing from that is the production process altogether, mm. um, which uh, construction is very weird in terms of production process within capitalist society in terms of industrial production. Um, but also what we're looking at is this idea that we can treat structures that by definition are geographically bounded, do not move, do not circulate do not really turn over in the same way as any given commodity, um, which is, I, I think, just completely erroneous. So, um, which is not to say that they don't behave like a commodity, but a lot of things that, you know, something you get a lot in urban stuff, planning stuff, whatever, is the call to sort of decommodify yeah. housing, stuff like that, which is all well and good, but it's like, 
you know, the notion of that particular commodity is, is I think rather unexplored. Mm. Um, and also, you know, frankly, this is like, I like describing this work as like me being in the backwater of a backwater because mm-hmm. like, this is also something where even when you can say like, okay, we're going to return to Marx. We have a fealty to Marx. Like we're going to go back to see what he says. Famously, Marx in Theories of Surplus Value, Volume 1 and 2, um, Capital Volume 3, a little bit in Economic Manuscripts of 1844, he talks about landed property. Um, but he's talking about it in particular with uh, agricultural rents, mm. which is ca- the like distributional payments that capitalists make to other capitalists for the use of land or mm-hmm. structures, uh, which Smith talks about a little bit. Marx, of course, gets a lot of this from Ricardo. Um, and he, you know, isn't able, he doesn't ever sort of like complete the thought basically. Mm. Um, volume three, you know, comes after in terms of, you know, when he writes it, it's after theories of surplus value, volume one and two, we can go back and forth all day on how, you know, Engels' role and all this, yeah, but, sure. um, but you've it, got the Trinity formula, you've yeah. got the rudiments of ground rent and all that. Exactly. There, the different, the distribution of the surplus to various types of capitalists. Exactly. And so what you're left with and, you know, through a lot of the history, there's a sort of truncated history of talking about this sort of thing in an academic sense, um, like what is rent? And we can talk about it basically, you know, in terms of agricultural rents and go back and forth on how much that applies to urban rent. Um, you know, there's, we don't really need to get into it. It's about 20 years of, you know, now uh, completely forgotten. So, which is what my dissertation is on. Bringing so it back, out. baby. That, yeah. Um, stay tuned, folks. Yeah, stay when tuned. When is that coming out? Oh, uh, three uh, years. Three years. Yeah. All right, we'll uh, have you back on the show. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Season eight of the Antifada. <laughs> Episode 1000. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms Inshallah. of... Re- yeah. <laughs> in terms of reification, I mean, I think the number one thing to keep in mind here, just to return to your original yeah. question, is like, you know, I, I think it's foolish to talk about any of this sort of stuff without being able to talk about just the the particularities and the quiddities or whatever of the particular building commodity mm-hmm. um, and then also what the production process looks like because if we're talking about construction as a sector which I think we have to yes um, Renko Bon who is great name I'll remember it forever Renko Bon yes That's Renko a cool with name. a K um, nice. Nice. he was a sort of construction like industrial geography writer in the 70s and 80s he has this great quote that I've used at least twice in my substack where he basically talks about like, okay, we're building a building, right? So we have land coming from landowning classes. Um, um, Murray, who, an economist, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Murray. Um, Our he, buddy Murray. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's, he's great. He's an Australian. Um, <laughs> fresh Oof. economic thinking is a substack. I know. He, he <laughs> makes up for being Australian. That, um, but he, he writes about how land is held as a asset portfolio, not as an inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, they re- certain landowners release land for development at certain periods of time based on when they think they can make the most money, obviously. So there's profit, you know, profit opportunity one. Um, it then passes into a developer who then hires an architect mm-hmm. and hires a contracting firm. Um, the contracting firm receives drawings from the architect who is functioning as a construction manager. Um, they subcontract out, you know, to various other people and other firms as necessary. Um, they rent their machines and, you know, their equipment, you know, as needed. They hire hire workers as needed and then with the full idea of letting them go mm-hmm. most times. Um, I'm waiting for my layoff check in the next couple of weeks. There or so. we go. Yeah. yeah, you know better than anyone. <laughs> um, 
And then so, you know, what we have then is now there's any number of firms involved in this process who are all given all pushing up against basically like a hard line number given by the developer for what they're willing to pay, all trying to make their cut, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And only then after they sort of finally work together over an extraordinarily long and like difficult production process that has almost zero standardization, a ton of hand tool labor still, um, completely open to the weather, completely open to geotechnical mm-hmm. stuff uh, pertaining to the particular site, um, to the point where, just to reiterate, almost zero standardization is possible, right. um, which is the sort of raison d'etre of like how industrial production works, is right. like by evening out rates of production or rates of profit in order to, like, via the evening out of technological modes of production, like the ability to invade into the production process. And uh, vast amounts of uh, fixed capital in a exactly. particular space, uh, the honing of a technical process of exactly. production that uh, serves to ultimately uh, uh, de-skill and uh, de-craft, essentially, exactly. uh, whatever, whatever work process there might be for the workers. Something that, of course, construction is relatively uh, allergic to, relatively. which is why... People like me and the listeners out there who are also in construction still have unions. Yeah, you know, to absolutely. any extent, is that is this peculiar nature the, the, of all the reasons that you're talking about? Yes, um, absolutely. Union union density and unionization is huge in construction, especially because historically, you know, unions did not pivot to residential construction in the Sun Belt and in the New South and stuff like that. So they, you know, union density in residential, especially stick-built single-family, is really, really low. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, yeah, here in, the, in God's country, on the <laughs> East Coast, we not, don't have that problem as much. As much. Um, but this is also the place that uh, Levittown came yeah, about. True. You know, the famous, like, uh, mass suburbs. Very true. Also were innovated here at the same time. Because... Right. Partially because of those pressures, right? 100%. The, to the extent that the construction process could be standardized, it was done by having, um, basically, instead of a gang start a house and finish a house, have, like, the window guys who come in and do the windows Absolutely. on 17 different houses in one day after the slab guys came in and did that, and then the Absolutely. framing guys came in. So there is this drive to do it, but just because of the nature of uh, the production of space and the, and the built environment... Uh, for all the reasons you mentioned, it can't be done to the extent that it can be done in a factory or in a warehouse right. or even in a service setting. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what, you know, long and short of it is what this means is given that the fixed capital outlays for any given construction firm are so, so diminished. I mean, just to reiterate, like most construction companies and contracting firms will rent the machines that they need for any given job. So yeah. they might have close to zero yeah. um, in terms of total total fixed capital outlays as you mentioned in the podcast it's or in your sub stack rather which is free by the way yes you can read um and uh, you can also pay me five dollars for it you, you can really also want. pay him ten dollars probably you could probably figure out a way to or send three thousand dollars for a founding <laughs> member per year there um, you go there one you day go. i'm gonna get somebody to slip <laughs> their finger on that button <laughs> you'll become a super marxist at exactly. that <laughs> but yeah like um when when they're doing employment numbers or when you're trying to look at the firms these like this vast sea of different uh smaller or medium-sized construction firms 
the actual employment is weird because there could just be five people in an office somewhere. Oh, yeah. But in these waves um, of the creation of various different projects, you know, that company might hire 100 workers and then those workers will disperse and mm-hmm. come back again. So in addition to construction under capitalism um, being particular and different for the reasons you outlined, it's also really hard to measure, it seems like, too. And so Almost a lot of impossible. your... Yeah, a lot of your work is trying to kind of parse the data, try to figure out, um, you know, not just about the production process too, but um, large, like I think a huge issue and the one that you got into it with Matt Iglesias Mm -hmm. uh, about was this sort of naturalization um, of the market, um, this sort of reliance uh, theoretically and practically on supply and demand um, to fix housing issues or development issues. Uh, and the sense that, like, um, ultimately, the market will work itself out. Right. And I mean, yeah, this and, is... And it doesn't seem... We, we all saw what happened in 2008. Totally. Right? It did yeah. not work itself out. And all the trillions of dollars that went into making it kind of work itself out in a sort of way again, just to collapse, as we're seeing now. Right. I mean, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the thing to keep in mind whenever anybody brings up supply and demand um, is... You can get this from Strafa, you can get this from Marx, you can get this from Rubin, um, you can get this from almost anyone. Uh, Harold Botwinick has a really good book, Persistent Inequalities, that has, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think I think the housing market works a lot like the labor market. Mm. Botwinick's book is about the labor market, highly recommend it. Um, but basically what you need to remember when we're talking about supply and demand is demand is not a single pool. So mm. like, you know, you and I may have a, you know, it's about effective demand, right? Mm. And so like you and I may want, uh, I don't know, fucking Ferrari or something, yeah. but we're just not in the market for it. So yeah. we don't count for the sort of total market share that Ferrari can get in its sort of war of competition with Lamborghini, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know other shit, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. um, I'm more a Bugatti guy. Right. Okay. Lamborghini yeah. works too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's... Yeah, sure. We got to each their own. That's the market. That's what the market does. That's the beauty of choice. I can be a Bugatti guy. I just received perfect information from you. (laughs) Um, And so I'll be setting some prices later. Markets work, folks. That's right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, what you need to keep in mind is this stuff is segmented. And like the the housing market, space markets in any particular city are also segmented. Um, Ben Ben Teresa has really good work on this um, where, you know, just talking about like, how you can actually see not only the segmentation of certain, you know, people looking for housing um, can only look in particular places given their incomes, but also how the treatment of people in particular segments of the housing market within a geographically defined area also experience evictions differently, Mm -hmm. you know, different percentages, um, all this sort of stuff where, you know, they experience landlords behaving in a different way, um, you know, can go on and on and on about all the basics of housing and everything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at, when it comes down to it, when what a landlord sees when they encounter the market, mm. and there's a great ProPublica piece that just came out that completely vindicated me and proved me right. Hell yeah. Um, which is also always nice. They should start after, doing that After more all often. the globe emo- emojis mauled right. on Twitter. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, but basically what they're saying is like, um, you know, what landlords can do is they can warehouse, basically keep things off the market unless they, you know, know they can get a good price for it. That's, you know, in keeping with segmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they can also do is, and what they do do and have algorithmic software um, that does this for them called Lease Star. Um, that's at least one of them that they can basically find what is called the capitalization rate. They can mm-hmm. see what like properties around them are going for and then set their rent in accordance with that. And I called that price dowsing um, in the market. 
So basically you push the price as high as you can go, um, given the sort of basics of the market nearby. Um, and then you maybe add a little bit more, you know, and so what you get is obviously rents sort of like in a continuously inflating spiral. Um, and you also get this sort of thing where we are constantly pushing at the upper limits. There is no sort of like, you know, there are no regulating capitals within housing that can say, say like, oh, we have the best process. We can undercut and undersell mm. because landlords intervene precisely at that point mm. where a capital that is an industrial production and trying to move and sell, they, in that particular point, at that critical fulcrum, landlords sit and they receive the product of the construction industry mm. and they set their price based off of demand information that they see in the market. So you can you can make you know you can argue all all day about supply and demand, but landlords do not see supply because they're not builders mm -hmm. and they only see demand. Um, construction companies don't see demand and they just see that they have a contract, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, it's completely different. Like it's a totally bifurcated thing. Yeah. And this is precisely Marx's point about crises is like, mm. you know, what happens in a crisis is you see the kind of dis supposed disunity, the carefully planned disunity um, of these two sides of the coin. If you want to be reductive about it, suddenly and swiftly and violently slam back together. Um, and you can see sort of the grand, circle of production consumption mm -hmm. what have you um and so you could make a uh argument that it's always in crisis yeah sure uh, the crisis it's is what makes crisis. it go yeah, yeah exactly uh we're in a, a particular crisis right now um mm -hmm. not one that maybe started in the housing sector maybe not one that's going to end in the housing sector right. but one that certainly over the last let's say at least several years has led to a massive inflation of rents, and mm -hmm. many listeners, I'm sure, are renters. Um, They're massive, crashing right now, by the way. Well, but yeah. they were they, they were they sky were, high. They yeah. were sky high alongside, uh, I think, a real like the beginning is a what looks like a mass movement of renters uh, mm -hmm. in this country and and renters councils everywhere. You've seen um, housing prices go crazy for various very specific uh, historical reasons related to not just the pandemic and the ability and the work from home thing for middle class right. professional workers to be able to basically move to some small tiny town somewhere <laughs> in Seattle and make 70 80,000 dollars a year um, along with of course to the the vast you know lack of uh, sufficient rate of profit in things like industry leading speculative investors to put massive amounts of money in. you'll often hear uh, online even among the right now which is interesting like the populist right talking about BlackRock and other right, large right. Uh, you know institutional investors making huge moves uh, buying up starter homes and then turning around and renting them out it feels like right now in this country and around the world too because this is a global process that um, housing and rental markets are really entering the consciousness of uh, not just the working class, Absolutely. but of the ruling class as well. So talk a little bit about what's happening at this moment. You're, you're right that the rental prices are starting to deflate. I think, what is it, six months after the housing prices start to go, then the rental prices start to go historically, usually. Yeah. usually. What's going on right now? So yeah, I mean, housing, um, you know, broadly, there, so there's... Housing is first in, first out, as ec economists say, in terms of a crisis. So it's sort of the bellwether in some senses, um, usually. But I, I think there's, there's an interesting thing here where I think ultimately kind of what we're talking about is inflation. Mm -hmm. um, and so inflation has obviously been in everybody's mind. 
And I, I've, I've, I think inflation with housing is very interesting. So when you look at the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they, they're the ones that report inflation month after month. Um, and so the CPIU, which is the Consumer Price Index for Urban Residents, it's a longer title, but it doesn't really matter. Um, but basically, it's, the I think, like 30 largest metro- metropolitan mm-hmm. areas in the United States. Um, and what they'll do is they, it, the CPI index sort of indexes um, food, energy, various other expenditures. There's also a segment for housing and housing shelter mm-hmm. or shelter goods. Um, and so shelter goods, they shelter call it. There's goods. something vaguely dystopian about. Oh that. yeah, uh, shelter goods that provide. This is even better. A my, flow of housing <laughs> services. <laughs> I'm taking my human capital stock and right. moving into a housing service uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. and enjoying the flow. Um, yeah. So like what everything everything devolves down into flows eventually. Everything. In capital's ideal world. We're all just flows. We're yes. just flowing around. Just man. flowing about. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you got you got the housing housing segment of CPI. And this one, it, it behaves so interestingly and I think hilariously. So within that, you have owner-occupied housing, which mm-hmm. is the percentage of that segment is roughly tethered to the amount of, um, and it makes sense, it's households that own their home. Mm-hmm. The American um, so, dream. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. They're living it. And then the the remainder of it is made up by rents mm-hmm. or renters. And so... What you get though is really weird because so all the all the food and energy stuff is all ex post. So basically, the BLS can look at the market, see the prices, average them out, and it, they basically just report on what prices are doing. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's about as good as it's going to get. However, you, they don't do that with housing. So mm-hmm. what they do is very very strange. I think okay. they they have a certain pool. Um, you know, they select them based you know in statistics, sort of like parameters that they enter in. And they have a certain pool of, you know, a few thousand uh, people that own their homes nationwide. Mm-hmm. They send them out a survey. Mm. And within the survey, and this is reported every month, within the survey, they say they have a question. It's like three questions long. This is one of them. This is the operative one. And it says, if you were to rent your house today, what would you rent it for? And so what we have then is this bizarre thing where enormous amounts of of policy at the national level are set by people completely uninformed by the market who see in in recent to use recent events as an example who see oh how's inflation is happening Uh they see rents are going up they're like oh i can probably get more for this they write down a higher number than they did last year last month and then so it's an aggregation of vague impressions yes And and it forces housing that is owned to behave statistically like housing that is rented. Interesting. And it's okay. this sort of imputation of rent by these, frankly, morons that don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, and then, you, and then the, there's, that's not to say that the rental segment of that CPI sort of calculation is good either because what it does is it, and there's a few problems. Uh, Verbruge is like a really good BLS economist has written about, about this a little bit, but he has the, the notion where it's like, okay, landlords' prices are sticky. You know, mm-hmm. like if you sign a lease, mo- the, the statistics do bear out that usually a landlord in most circumstances does not actually raise the rent during the course of the lease, which, thank God. Because mm-hmm. um, in New York, they definitely could whenever mm-hmm. they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with a few days, like a month or two's notice. Yeah, but, sure. Um, what you get then is this really weird thing where the rent price is sort of, you know, the rent always eats first, so it has to be paid out. So you, you know, continue to be on the rolls. 
but the rent price fluctuates also month to month as a portion of CPI. Mm. But that's not how most exper- people experience rents. They experience rents going up and down every year, every six months, every two years. Uh, you know, there's various other mitigating factors there. But rent is kind of like a little bit isolated from inflation. A mm. little bit, mm. not much. But landlords experience it not as that because when energy starts jumping up and down, if the landlord, say, pays for gas, pays for, well, electricity, mm. stuff like that, they're experiencing a certain cut into their profits, mm. um, you know, month to month to month. But the renter doesn't actually experience it that mm. way. So there's like this, by trying to be like a jack of all trades, and the C, the CPI has been sort of modified and mutilated, you know, five or six times since like 83, mm. I think. Um, it just keeps getting moved around. They keep making different sort of ways of measuring and that's when they kind of create this variable of um owners occupy or owners expected rent which Mm -hmm. is what they call it when a household sort of makes that writes their little survey thing Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i mean like what you're getting is partially this kind of just like hysteria of having people think they can rent for higher than they can with minimal information and then partially this kind of like retrograde move where like a lot of these things aren't actually necessarily going up unless you're looking to rent right now. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my main problems with sort of like all yimby nimby shit. Yeah, and it's all it's it. all fake anyway. Yeah. And it's all it's warring factions of, of capital. capital. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um that's the great line. But yeah. um ultimately like all they give a shit about is not tenancy at all. And mm-hmm. so the I think the Marxists sort of like if you actually care about tenants, if you're like in tenant organizing or anything like that, you care about tenants. Mm-hmm. What Yimbies and Nimbies care about are people who are trying to look and rent a new apartment. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they can say like, oh, the price has changed or whatever, because they're looking only at that starting price. Um, and that's all they care about. They care about people moving in the market and they care. And that's, you know, because partially, because historically the only way that the only rent models that, you know, let's say the class, the neoclassical economists have ever furnished are precisely looking at that. They're mm-hmm. looking at rent prices because that is what most closely resembles a normal commodity market. Mm. And they don't look at anything after, after that. They're just looking at what they would term a purchase, but mm. it's just a lease. It's paying an access price and that's it. And so they're so left. They try, this. they try to apply the standards of like, of normal supply and demand understanding, you know, the movements of these commodities um, but they're and they try to isolate the one part in which that market actually functions in that way, despite all the other distortions that you had mentioned before. And this is the sort of perfect apparatus that they imagine we should be using in order to guarantee that everybody has a sufficient shelter mm-hmm. and you know not paying more than thirty three percent of their uh, wages and rent or right. whatever. And so what you're arguing then is that even in the best of possible worlds for either the Yimby side or the NIMBY side of this split, um, you're still leaving, of course, at the heart of it, all of the contradictions of the commodification of space and um, commodifying shelter. And, right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, they just, I mean, they frankly just don't care because yeah. why, why would they? And I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the very, let's say, the most rigorous, um, I'm rolling my eyes here. If you look at the most rigorous sort of treatments of why are rent prices different, um, economic models and stuff like that for, you know, bourgeois economics or whatever, um, you have basically the Alonso Mills Muth model, which is just taking, it has this whole idea of like, okay, we have a city in the very center, rents are the highest. Um, and then we have 
every single unit is perfectly self-identical. The only difference is their distance from the center. Mm. Um, and so they say rents are a function of how close they are to the city center. Because again, they cannot have landlords figure in because it's right. just like, you know, total imperious whatever horseshit a landlord wants to do. As you said in your sub stack, landlords are evil and stupid. Yeah, landlords are evil and stupid. And, you know, that's all you really need to know because they can do whatever they want. As long as somebody's paying for it, they got away with it. Right. And like that's that's it. And you have to pay for it because otherwise, you know, you can't do all the nice, lovely things that enable you to reproduce your labor. Um, and so you have that. And then you have variations on a theme where it's like hedonic modeling, which basically just says like, if people like it, they'll pay more for it. Hedonic <laughs> just means pleasure. Yeah. Sure. Um, and then the you have pleasure principle. Exactly. And then you have hoteling who kind of does, I love this guy's name. He, hoteling. Um, <laughs> I thought you were talking about like the process. No, of no, hotel, he's like just SROing. Yeah, you know? no, just, a, just an economist, a spatial economist named a spatial urban economist named hoteling. That's perfect. What's that uh, called? Nominative determinism. Yes, I think. Yes. He was born to be, a, he was born yeah. to be a little sicko. Born into it <laughs> yeah um and he just says okay what if we have a city with uh two central business districts sure. and so like you know all they do is they just say like okay we can identify the point where rents are the absolute highest and then everything sort of just has this kind of dissipating effect as you move out so it's I and mean, it's useless you know it's how totally does it useless. so so they don't truly understand their models don't actually model what's going on Correct. so um, on top of, you know, the ways that you've described uh, this really crazy production process of space, uh, the ways in which landlords structurally are both evil and stupid. Um, <laughs> what else do, do we need to know as communists, as people who are perhaps organizing in tenant unions right now? What do we need to know about the housing um, economy? Um, that that we're not going to get from the BLS, we're not going to get from right. Richard Florida or the hotel guy. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the foremost thing, and I, I work with the uh, uh, Met Council, so and which is a New York local, long, long uh, an, an longevity. Responsible for the fact that we still have rent control Absolutely. in New York City from the Second World War, yeah. basically. Yeah. Haven for communists during the McCarthy era and everything like that. Yeah. Really great organization. Um, and, you know, I, I don't do too terribly much with them right now, but I do... Uh, there's like a housing hotline that meet, you know, it's got hours uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so if you're look, if you have any problems with your housing in your in your New York City, go check it out. Call call us up. Um, but that's a huge thing. I mean, there's a lot of knowledge, especially here, but every municipality has its own rules. Mm -hmm. People just don't know what they can and can't do. Um, there was a big article in the Times about the Kansas City uh, right. tenant power thing, yes. and they have. They had some really funny interviews with the mayor who was like crest, both crestfallen and also confused that all of a sudden <laughs> there's like an organized working class right. movement out there that's like making all these demands on it. He was like, I'm trying to do the nice liberal thing. Right. I'm trying to make sure that 15% of all luxury housing development has affordability based on lot, which is the way, the really the only way that's like the um, Mayor Adams or the mayor of Kansas City or in Los Angeles or elsewhere in the United States that uh, political municipal political figures have figured out how to 
insert some semblance yeah. of rationality into the market because all that ends up getting produced and you'll hear the developers you'll hear the real estate board of new york type people you'll hear the manhattan institute people talk about how well it's just impossible impossible under these conditions because of regulations or because of labor prices or their cost of land uh to produce uh, affordable housing like there used to be mm-hmm. and so the only way you know that that uh, political figures have found is to like ensure in order for what zoning for certain zoning rights is to force them to put like a lottery in for right. cheap housing. And I mean, those lotteries can take years, you know, yeah. and I, I think, you know, we, we do have to, I mean, it's amazing, you know, what can be, what still exists despite, you know, over like now, well, basically now a century of like constant attacks on rent control and rent, yeah. and rent stabilization here that it does still exist. And like, you know, recently with the, the housing tenant protections or safety, I always forget the name, but the anti-eviction, the eviction moratorium. Is that what you're referring to? Well, no, the act in 2019 that made it now illegal to, well, it's much harder to get things off the The, market. The one that came through Albany after they kicked out the IDC. Yes, absolutely. But the eviction moratorium under COVID had us from what I have seen, or it seems to have a historical corollary, to what happened again in World War totally. II with um, you know the rent control that was put in as part of a larger price control across right. the entire American economy in that um, this brief window where the economy was in complete chaos, complete churn uh, during the pandemic where there's like this massive crisis for the country, this eviction moratorium was put in. That can now be used as a leverage point. And it looks like people in Kansas City and elsewhere are trying to right. say, well, if eviction moratorium is good under these particular crisis conditions, well, how about now? Right. And how do we use that to go on? So, Yeah, I mean, that, you know, the, I think the one thing about the eviction moratorium is it, is it is great to have as a model. Like it shows that it can be done exactly like you said. What now needs to be done is defending it and expanding it. Right. And, you know, one thing that really does genuinely work is a tenant union. Um, and it always has. I mean, like, you know, the 20s, teens of uh, the 20th century, especially in New York, where had extremely powerful tenant unions. They're usually organized along, like, ethnic lines in mm-hmm. particular neighborhoods, usually, like, very strongly tied in with labor unions. Um, because and communists, in yeah, the oh 30s. yeah, oh yeah. I mean, the the unemployed councils of the Communist Party of the United States in the 30s were like also really powerful in terms of like doing uh, you know de evictions and you know fighting marshals and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Um, this is what needs to be done. I yeah. mean, like this is what people. I think you know, there's not going to be a policy fix here because obviously it's structural and endemic what is happening. But you know, any sort of harm reduction or whatever you want to say has to be. It's door to door, you know. I mean, it, it always has been, it always will be, and that's what they understood then. And I think that's what we're missing now. And like, you know, if you're going to fight your a landlord, your landlord, anyone else's landlord, it's fighting them directly. Like, it, it's not something about like pushing some nice policy through. It's yeah. not something about like, you know, having them answer to the better angels of their nature or anything like that. They have a sort of as personifications of land capital. They have a vested interest and price housing, raising the rents as far as they can go and getting people out and getting new people in that can pay and, you know, blah, 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 blah. We all know this if you've rented before. Of course. And so, like, what you have to do is, like, fight tooth and nail. And, yep. you, and, and build class power. With because, build class power. Because the Matt Iglesias's and, the, and those of the world are, are going to be, of course, always, even though this is less and less what the uh, landscape looks like, um, 
defending landlords as like the mo- the the, mo- the widow of like a union construction worker who bought a two family home right. and now she's trying to keep rent low for the- when even if that is the case she she has still has donned the character mask of land capitalist Absolutely. at that point in time but even irrespective of that that becomes less and less and less of course especially now in the United States what the landlord looks like the landlord looks like blackrock the landlord yes. looks like the australian pension fund you know of yes. like the public workers in australia right. it's becoming uh, more and more a, a big capital a big finance um, operation oh yeah i mean 100% and i think you know what that does is you know actually people like iglesias are kind of like you know water carriers for not necessarily blackrock they know the optics are bad on that right. but they do love their sort of bigger landlords because they say it's more of a impersonal process you know and we all love, love the abstraction we all yeah. love our impersonal yeah. domination we love um. impersonal domination both <laughs> in the end that's all we'll have left right. we'll be completely free to do anything <laughs> except uh not pay fucking eight thousand dollars a month for a shithole exactly exactly <laughs> to, to some faceless management company that's based in like hong kong or right something like that. right and this is what freedom looks like yeah and you know marx is already identifying this in, in theories of surplus value volume two he or yeah he talks about how you know even at that point the you know the sort of dissolution of all political ties to the land enables somebody to own property in scotland and live in constantinople mm. And it's like, we're, none of this is new. And I mean, this is a point I try to make is like, landlords are, are atavistic creatures. They should not be here. I mean, right. you know, and, and, and this is sort of what classical political economy wrestles with. It's like Malthus loves landlords. He, you know, says like they have a vital role to play. Ricardo points out that they are, you know, sort of parasites. Mm-hmm. You know, this is constantly the turnover and turnover and turnover that, you know, then gets sundered and, you know, sort of put underground when the marginalist revolution happens. But it's like, that is correct. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, you can go all the way, but I'm not a neo-Ricardian. Don't, don't accuse me of neo-Ricardian. But, but we don't, but we, we, we lost that in, for a lot of reasons, obviously moving from classical to neoclassical. Yeah. Uh, but one of the reasons is that there wasn't a political and economic class that existed that represented a nativistic order. Now the connection between land capital finance capital mm-hmm. industrial capital i mean it's all one thing and there's no Absolutely. there are billionaires for sure who own the vast majority of this but all of these various sectors of the capitalist economy all work with one another and there isn't like some top-hatted fop right fox hunting you know <laughs> right, <laughs> like right the next town over like some absentee landlord there isn't even like in um you know the great revolutionary movement in china and the overthrow of their landlord class like some guy who once had a connection to this land and yes. then moved to the main trading city and maybe you can find him and hang him up or maybe <laughs> you just expropriate the land and he just like goes away or you right. buy him off or whatever now it's like fully implicated in the rest of this system of exploitation and domination and of course you see that from the the realm of construction, you know, where, you know, it's absolute surplus. It's like smashing up unions and, of course, attempting to, like, draw the blood from the stone of, like, very difficult labor and uh, make that as liquid as possible to throw people out all the way to the developmental process, uh, the process of development, which is tied into, like, all sorts of capital accumulation all around the globe. And then finally, we, at the end of the day, as renters or you know, mashallah homeowners, you know, <laughs> then end up on the back end of this thing. But, um, you know, I, I think this is why what you're doing is really, really important because, um, 
there tends to be based on someone's political bent, um, whether they're like a liberal, they're a social democrat, they're a communist, hell, they're like one of these weird national conservatives or whatever, who will talk about <laughs> yeah. BlackRock and stuff like totally. that, although from a more than vaguely anti-Semitic stupid, yeah, and stupid, stupid evil position, uh, evil yeah. position right? Um, these, they, they, what, what everybody is doing, and I include myself, everybody is doing this, is they're grasping like particular moments of the metamorphosis right. of capital. Absolutely. Um, and, and particular like sites of exploitation, domination, uh, rent-seeking or whatever. And I think it's uh, the, the work that you're doing is important because we need to have a uh, holistic or uh, an mm-hmm. approach towards the totality yes. of all of this and understand that when people are fighting online or they're fighting in meetings, they're fighting wherever at the bar uh, about whether it's important to do tenant organizing or worker organizing or mm-hmm. whatever, ultimately we have to understand that this is all as it was in the 1930s in the United States and elsewhere, this is all part and parcel of a larger struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, so, you know, just this... Irene Bruegel, writing in the 70s, critiques Harvey for um, sort of collapsing worker and tenant power. And Mm. so I think there's something interesting there that actually opens up and more onto what you're talking about. Because not all workers are renters, you know, that that sort of thing is true. Um, And but what that means is also like, you know, there are parallel tracks here where we can have an organization for for worker power and an organization for tenant power. And these have to communicate together but at no point should we like the exploitation that a renter faces or a tenant faces is not the exploitation that a worker Mm -hmm. faces they're related they're similar because to your to your other point you know there's no there's no landlord in the sense that we sort of like have this vision of them anymore and it's not just because of blackrock but it's because of the possibilities of investment of capital Mm. at this sort of multi-sectoral level you might have any given person might be invested in owning a particular building, also invested in stocks, also invested in production, and you know this, that, and the other thing. That doesn't mean anything because the if you're a renter, the way you encounter them, because again, it's you know on a roughly individualized or hopefully you know an organizational level as tenants, the way you encounter them is wearing that mask of the mm-hmm. landlord, and mm-hmm. so like you can attack them for their holdings and, you know, sort of like assert yourself as a resident, as a, you know, player and their little scheme to skim your money off Mm. and, you know, whatever, Um, you know, and that has to communicate with, you know, more worker organizing, everything like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to have like, you know, a sort of wobbly like move that does like, I mean, which I'd love if we had a wobbly (laughs) sort of thing going on, but it doesn't mean that tenant, a tenant identity necessarily speaks directly to that. It's just, you know, it's adjacent. Right. Um, and like, you know, part of the totality and everything like that is knowing like what constituent parts there are. You right. know, it's not just saying it's one, one whole big thing. I'm I not mean, saying you're saying that. No, no, saying, no. You know, I, I think it's interesting because on this show in general and on, you know, this particular episode, um, you know, what we're trying to do is move towards a sort of uh, a view of the totality and understanding of the totality. Totally. And then we try to, in each episode, try to figure out a way in which that can be instrumentalized mm-hmm. in, a, in a particular way. And I guess, you know, 
I'm not sure that theoretically putting all these parts together and, and <laughs> necessarily leads to a movement, but I feel like what we've seen recently with the rise of tenant movements and we've seen strike waves recently in the United totally. States, not to mention, you know, mass, uh, you know, mass movements and mass action around the globe in light of all the crises that we've been having lately. Um, I feel as though at least the theoretical toolkit that we have uh, is far more powerful than when we had a uh, hundred years ago or so. Absolutely. And so we have to just operationalize it. That's all it takes. And then we'll just have the full communism. It'll be awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Two, two, three years we got. That. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh let's set, set the clock. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I'll set um, the timer on my phone. Yeah. We're going to have Lou Ruchite, uh communism. <laughs> we're going to have MAGA communism next. When, when Trump gets elected in two years, it'll yeah. be MAGA yeah, communism. My, it'll be sick. Oh yeah. Schiller is meeting right now. Schiller. Oh, that was freaks. yesterday, man. I thought oh, maybe yeah. about going just as like a lull, but then I said to myself, I work, man. I'm building a flood wall for an MTA facility right now. That's far I am more not going to send my spend my fucking Saturdays listening to fucking dead ender Larushites. Yeah. But let's take this behind the paywall. Let's go to the bonus episode. Let's talk shit on Jeremiah Moss. You had All a right. great takedown of this really funny uh, book talking about how actually the pandemic made New York City great again or mm. something like that. So we'll get into that, folks. Kevin Rogan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Been great. You can check out the second part of this episode by becoming a patron if you're not one already. Patreon.com slash the Antifada. You can find the link in the show notes. We're going to talk a bunch of uh, about a bunch of stuff, including talking a bunch of shit, which will be really, really fun. So see you on the other side. Please heed these words that I